I think I'm going to date myself by asking this question to begin this episode of the Discover the Word podcast. But uh, do you remember a family TV show from back in the 1960s and early 70s called My Three Sons? And, I don't know, maybe you got into watching your reruns of it on a streaming service. But the group is going to talk a little about that show because we're calling this Bible study on Discover the Word, My Three Sons. Bill Crowder will be leading Mark DeHaan and Elisa Morgan and Daniel Ryan Day in looking at a story in Scripture from the very earliest days of human history. Cain and Abel and Seth were three sons of Adam and Eve. Theirs is a story that definitely has some dark parts to it, but as Bill will help us to see, they're part of a bigger and redemptive story that the Bible is telling. And so to begin, Bill is going to reference something children's author Sally Lloyd-Jones wrote in her book, The Jesus Storybook Bible. Now, we had Sally as a guest on Discover the Word a while ago. And when she was reading some sections of this children's storybook Bible to us, which was really memorable, by the way. Here's what she said. I'm going to play a clip for you. And then Bill and Elisa and Mart and Daniel are going to begin our study for this week called My Three Sons. But first, listen to this from Sally Lloyd-Jones. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story. The story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And at the center of the story, there is a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He is like the missing piece in a puzzle, the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together and suddenly you can see a beautiful picture. I don't think I would be speaking out of line if I said that one of the favorite guests we've had on Discover the Word was Sally Lloyd-Jones. Yeah. Y'all agree with yeah. that? Totally, totally. Her Jesus Storybook Bible is just one of the most precious things you could ever give or read to a small child. It's just brilliant. She got down to our level, didn't she? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. She really was profound, too. Yeah. I mean, it's not just because she wrote the Storybook Bible. And, you know, we had some great conversations with her, too. If anybody's interested on God, hears her. Mm-hmm. They give you more background into who she is and how God has met her. It's mm. been, woof. What conversations? Yeah. yeah. Does anybody remember the subtitle to the Jesus Storybook Bible? Yes. Yeah, I feel like just hanging out with you, Bill, I've heard it enough times that even if I hadn't yeah. read it, I would know. It's that every story whispers Jesus' name or his name. Yes. Yeah. Now, I want to test that this week in our conversations, and I want to test it to see if in even some of the darkest moments in early human history— if those stories still whisper Jesus's name, mm-hmm. I think it's a valid idea to test because, I mean, it's a brilliant line, but is it a truth or is it just a marketing hook? Yeah, a lot of us have a lot of trouble with the dark side, as you called it, of the Old Testament mm-hmm. stories that they don't look at first glance to be giving God a good take, mm-hmm. and we're not yeah. sure what to do with them. Mm-hmm. Well, what we want to do is we want to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and 4 for our conversations this time around. And for reasons that will become obvious as we move along, I've entitled these conversations, My Three Sons. Now, all of us except one is probably old enough that we remember watching that show on TV. What do you remember about My Three Sons? Fred McMurray. Yeah. And he was a big star at that time. He was one of the first 
big stars of movies to make the transition into television. Yeah. And it's something that we all watched it. We all know it. But it was yeah. old school at this point, right? Yeah. Well, uh, except that wasn't he a single dad? A widower. Uh-huh. That was kind of new That's for interesting. the era. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And when I think yeah. back on that, I don't think that ever been portrayed before. Ah. It was a fairly interesting concept. He was a widower with three sons. He brings in Uncle Charlie to help him raise these sons. And Uncle Charlie's kind of a curmudgeon old dude, you know. Who and, wore a frilly apron. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the oldest son eventually married and moved out. And so they had to have a third son. So they brought in actually the younger brother of the guy who played Chip. One who of the was other sons. The third yeah. son in the original iteration of the show. And it's a weird thing. I've looked it up and read about it online. It's just a weird deal because what happened was this youngest kid, Ernie was his name, was supposed to be adopted by a family. And the guy got transferred in his job to the Orient and kind of left the kid in the lurch. So Fred McMurray stepped in and adopted him. And once again, he had my three sons. So it was just a really interesting program that dealt with a lot of family-type issues in a sitcom sort of way at a time when television didn't show a lot of the gnarly things Mm -hmm. of life. But that show got some of it, so it was an interesting show. Do you think I can still find it on YouTube or something like that? Because I have no idea what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, I bet it's on Netflix. So My Three Sons is where we want to start. And we want to start by looking at literally the first family, And by the first family, I mean the first family, the first family ever. And to do that, we have to go back to Genesis chapter 3. And Elisa, would you read Genesis 3, verses 23 and 24 for me, please? So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Okay, so obviously we need to get some context here. (laughs) I feel like I did when you were describing the uh, show. My Three Sons. I feel that about where we are in the story right now. (laughs) So what's happened up to this point? I mean, there's not that much up to this point in terms of the Bible because there's only a couple of chapters and part of chapter three. So what's happened up to this point in the Bible story? Just enough for them to get kicked out of the garden, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Which was actually quite a bit. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. In chapters one and two, you have the story of creation. And then you come into chapter three and you have the man and the woman disobeying God's instructions about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then there's some statements of consequences in Genesis 3, verses 14 through 19. And then Adam and Eve are banished from the garden. That word banished is really important. I want you to hang on to it because in a later conversation, we'll come back to that word banished. So in the midst of all of this going on, Adam and Eve's failure to, to do what God had instructed them to do, And then they're being banished. Even in those statements of consequences, there was also a promise, wasn't there? Mm -hmm. And that promise was Genesis 3, verse 15. Daniel, do you have that by chance? Sure. It says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Now, that's part of the statement of consequences to the serpent. Mm -hmm. And he tells the serpent... I'm going to put friction or conflict between your seed 
and the seed of the woman. And the seed of the woman is going to crush your head, even though you will bruise his heel. And that statement in Genesis 3.15 by theologians is referred to as the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel, because the seed of the woman will eventually end up being Jesus. Okay, Bill, my translation says the offspring of the woman. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. okay, so that's good. And that's NLT, right, right. Mark? Yeah. yeah. And I guess the gospel idea there, or the good news, right, is what that word means, is that evil in yeah. some way is going to be crushed or destroyed. Yeah. And the serpent, the evil one who precipitated the trouble that got them kicked out of the garden, he's going to be dealt with ultimately and finally. So that kind of gets us out of the garden and into the world in a sense with Adam and Eve. And so Genesis 4 verse 1 comes next. Mark, would you read that for us, please? Sure. Now, Adam had sexual relationships with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant. And when she gave birth to Cain, she said, with the Lord's help, I have produced a man. Hmm. A couple of interesting things in that statement. If we just take the statement of face value, first of all, she sees the child as coming with God's help. And it seems, and I don't want to push this too hard, but a lot of scholarship seems to agree that it seems that she sees this child as the answer to the promise that Daniel read in Genesis 3.15, that she thinks that Cain is the one who's going to crush the serpent's head. Now, why do you think that? Well, like I said, that seems to be what scholars seem to think. I wonder if it's related to the line, with the help of the Lord, because as much as having a child is mysterious and a really beautiful thing and painful for her and all of that, at the same time, there almost is like an extra weight given to Cain in some way by saying, Mm -hmm. with the help of the Lord. So I wonder if maybe that's where they're pulling that from. Maybe, but just think about, this is the very first birth, isn't Mm -hmm. it? Yeah. I mean, goodness, with the help of the Lord. I mean, just in a regular birth, you can't get through it without the help of the Lord, right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You know, this seems like it could be as much an exponential expression of what birth requires. Mm. But it seems like it just would make so much sense with that promise. Basically, the only thing they knew, and this being the first birth, it seems like it would be a a logical assumption Mm -hmm. to say, this is, Mm -hmm. okay, this is the fulfillment. They've never seen it before. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So with the birth of Cain, the human race begins to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And Adam is going to have at least two more sons that are going to be named in Scripture. And as we get into their story a little deeper, we'll see how these three sons tell the story of the early days of humanity, of humankind. But we'll also see whether or not in some dark moments in that story, we think that even this story whispers Jesus' name. That's what I want us to explore together. Does that sound like a good deal to you guys? Yeah, sure does. Uh, We're going all the way back to Genesis. And as we heard, it didn't take long for sin to enter the world, exposing our need for a savior. The first, as Bill said, the very first family had some serious dysfunction. Well, you're listening to Discover the Word and you're at the table with Marty Hahn, Lisa Morgan, Bill Crowder, and Daniel Ryan Day. And at the beginning of that first part of this conversation, we referred to some conversations that we had with Sally Lloyd-Jones, 
who kind of voice the direction that these conversations are headed, discovering how even stories like these whisper Jesus' name. And if you haven't heard those conversations that we had with Sally Lloyd-Jones about the Jesus Storybook Bible, or maybe you'd like to go back and listen to them again, we would recommend that you go to our website and click on the Archive tab up at the top of the page. And then probably the easiest way for you to find those shows, which, as we said, were so memorable in part because of Sally reading several stories from her book, The Jesus Storybook Bible, uh, would be to go to the date that those last aired. Search back to October of 2021, and that'll take you right there. October of 2021. That's where to go in the archives to hear those conversations with Sally Lloyd-Jones. That series, and obviously so many more, are available there at discovertheword.org. And you may also remember that they talked about a couple of conversations Elisa had with Sally Lloyd-Jones on the God Hears Her podcast that she hosts for us here at Our Daily Bread Ministries. God Hears Her is a podcast for women in which Elisa and her co-host, Aaron Eddy, talk about topics and talk with some really great guests about how God hears us, He sees us, and He loves us because we are His. And so I encourage you to go and check that podcast out as well. And at some point, be sure to catch a couple of those conversations they had with Sally Lloyd-Jones. They were episodes 31 and 35. And they are well over 100 episodes now, so you'll have to search back for them. But uh, God Hears Her, another resource from Our Daily Bread Ministries that I think you'll find helpful. And you'll find it at GodHearsHer.org. All right, now let's get back to our study of the first family in those first chapters of Genesis about my three sons and what was at the core of what broke that first family apart. I think all of us have brothers or at least brothers-in-law. Is that right? Yep. Yeah, I was yes. born into a family of four boys. <laughs> I had three younger sisters growing up, and I was always frustrated with my mom that she didn't have a boy. But now yeah. I've got brothers-in-law, so it's okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, so I've got some brothers above and one below and a sister as well. So, yeah. Uh, I've got three brothers and three sisters, which means I've got three brothers and three brothers-in-law. <laughs> yes. One of the things that I have learned, which is not overly profound, but is nonetheless something that I have learned, is that being brothers is hard. Mm. I think being siblings is hard, though, Bill. I yeah. mean, sisters are not a cakewalk. <laughs> so Do you mean, Bill, when, when you're young or when you're older or both? I think it can be both and. Mm-hmm. Or sometimes all the friction that you have as kids when you're trying to win your parents' approval kind of goes away when you're out on your own and you can be more like friends than competitors. Yeah. I think a lot of it depends on, you know, the family dynamic that you grow up in. Yeah. In my family, my three brothers were outstanding athletes. I kind of was a late bloomer in sports. And so (laughs) my brothers were world-class baseball players. One of my brothers, a state handball champion. Mm. I brought honor society. (laughs) So sometimes there's this competition thing between us. What are some other things that can affect how brothers relate to each other? I was just telling my wife yesterday, I came upstairs after trying to settle a dispute between brothers. (laughs) And I was like, man, I had no idea as a parent how much time I would spend trying to convince people 
that it's worth it to share. <laughs> it's like, like how much time do I have to spend convincing them that sharing is good? Evidently a lot more time because we're not there yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, buckle in. <laughs> yeah. I think all kinds of elements are at play here, Bill, chief of which we humans just never feel like we're quite where we want to be and we compare ourselves mm-hmm. to each other. And then we can compete for the prize of being the best, you know, whether it's to our parents or in our school or on a team, as you were referencing. And so our sibling is the one closest to us, next to us, if you will. We measure each other on the walls with pencil marks and, you know, you're taller than me. And, you know, we just, it's an, it's inherent, isn't it? It is. And and parents can have a lot to do with it too. Sure. Yeah. I mean, if the kids sense that the parent is favoring one child over the other, either early in life or late, I mean, it can complicate things so much. Yeah, because that's when I think we really, to your point, Elisa, can begin to devalue ourselves and our own abilities or gifts or whatever we've been given, because it's easy to say, well, even mom and dad don't think I'm very much. Mm. And sometimes that's where those deep-seated seeds of resentment begin Mm -hmm. and then build over time so that later Mm -hmm. in life, it's hard for two siblings to even look at each other. Right. Yeah. Mm, And so that brings us to the first siblings and the first sibling rivalry. And we want to talk about what contributed to the very first sibling rivalry. We saw in our first conversation, Adam and Eve had a son. They named him Cain, which some scholars say the name Cain means acquired because Eve said, I have acquired a man with the help of the Lord. Mm -hmm. Right. You have that. Now you have Genesis 4, verse 2. What does that say to us, Elisa? Eve gave birth to Cain's brother Abel. Abel was a keeper of the flocks. Cain was a cultivator of the ground. Okay, so Cain gets a brother. Notice Mm -hmm. she doesn't say she gave Adam a son. She (laughs) gave Cain a brother. Oh, that's interesting. (laughs) Because that's kind of where the point of friction is going to be going forward. And then there's this statement of comparison or, in the very least, information about what the two boys bring to the table, right? Abel's a keeper of flocks. Cain is a cultivator of the ground. Mm -hmm. Now, with all of that, if Cain means acquired, and we've talked about names and why they matter so much in Scripture— What does the name Abel mean, Daniel? You talked about it a good bit when you were leading us in some conversations on Ecclesiastes. Yeah, when we were talking through Ecclesiastes, this was one of the biggest moments for me, because that book is so much about all the things we try to find meaning in, but end up being just worthless or passing or fleeting or whatever. And the word that shows up over and over again in Ecclesiastes is hevel, which means puff of air or smoke. So it's here today, gone tomorrow. Mm. And Abel's name is the Hebrew word Hevel. But I guess over time, we've made it into more of an English-sounding Abel, but Mm -hmm. it's the Hebrew word Hevel, which means Mm. fleeting or passing or smoke or puff Mm. of air. And since we know where this story's going, that name actually almost feels a little prophetic, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Because his life is going to be like a puff of air that's here and then it's gone. Mm. Let's hear about that. Daniel, would you read Genesis 4 verses 3 through 8 for us, please? Sure. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord from the fruit of the ground. Abel on his part also brought an offering from the firstborn of his flock and from their fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering 
but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain became very angry, and his face was gloomy. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your face gloomy? If you do well, will your face not be cheerful? And if you do not do well, sin is lurking at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain talked to his brother Abel, and it happened that when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Okay, now within that account, there's a bunch of thorny stuff. And this is one of those really super dark moments that we have to wonder, how is this supposed to whisper Jesus' name to us? Mm -hmm. Yes. And Mm -hmm. so we're going to unravel that as we go further into this series of conversations. But just in this, what is the point of tension here? Well, it looks like one sacrifice is acceptable and the other one quote, did not find favor with God. And, you know, your immediate response is, well, why? Where'd they get mm-hmm. the instructions mm-hmm. of what they were supposed to bring and how'd they know? And it's easier yeah. to see if that's the case, why Cain would feel it's just not fair. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. You know, I do yeah. all this work in the fields and I want to give my offerings well, to the Lord and it's not accepted. It's my role. It's who I am. Yeah. Yeah. And it's amazing how ambiguous this story actually is and how little information it gives us because it says that Abel's offering is regarded by the Lord, which just means that God saw it. The word for regard is the word to see. But Cain's offering, God didn't regard or see. But it doesn't tell us why. It doesn't Mm -hmm. tell us, was it what was brought? Was it the heart behind what Mm -hmm. was brought? Was it the fact that Cain didn't bring first fruits, but Abel did bring first fruits? Like We have no idea in reality, looking back, why one was seen and one wasn't. In the NIV, it says, did not look with favor or looked with favors. There seems to be some kind of evaluative regard as well. But why? Yeah, Yeah, let me throw a couple of options at you, and we can play with these for a minute. One option, a lot of scholars, going back to our conversations with Randy Richards and Brandon O'Brien in Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes, there are a lot of things in the Scripture that are left unsaid because the original hearers of the story would have known those things, mm-hmm. but because it's not recorded for us 2,000 or 3,000 years later, we don't have that same information. Mm-hmm. And what they say is that what's left unsaid in here is that at some point God had made clear to them how worship was to be done, and Abel was following that and Cain wasn't. Mm-hmm. Now, the mm-hmm. second possibility has to do not so much with Abel was offering a better sacrifice and Cain was offering a worse sacrifice, so one was accepted and the other wasn't, is it something in their heart attitude behind what they were doing? And this may even be part of what Hebrews 11 verse 4 is saying when it says, by faith, Abel offered a better sacrifice than his brother Cain. Mm, mm-hmm. And that could go either way, couldn't it? Yeah. Because yeah. the Lord had told them to offer up an animal, a lamb, or it could refer to the fact that it was his attitude, yeah, like you're saying. that he was making his offering by faith, and Cain wasn't. And I don't know what that would look like, but those are some possibilities. Yeah, and even those two assume that the Lord had told them to bring offerings, mm-hmm. which we don't know that from the scriptures. So if we're in the land of probability, <laughs> it could be that because Abel was so overwhelmed with gratitude for the success of his flock or for the blessings he had received— that he wanted to bring something to God to honor 
God's blessing for him. And Cain just decided, well, if Abel's doing that, then I'll bring something too or something. <laughs> like we really yeah. don't know. Yeah. yeah. Good point. But again, something is different about them because yep. one is regarded and the other isn't regarded. And when Cain's is not regarded, he reacts in a way mm-hmm. that God warns him about. He warns him, mm-hmm. sin is crouching at the door of your heart to take control on you. You got to get control of this thing. And rather than getting control of it, Cain, it seems, lures his brother Abel out into the field and he murders him to eliminate the competition for God's favoritism at this point. Yeah, it's so interesting how this progresses because Cain experiences what we would experience if we were in the same boat, which is anger. Anger Mm -hmm. or like depression or discouragement or something. But for him, it's 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 not fair. It's it's just not fair. Yeah. And for those of us who've been on the short end of the stick when it comes to parental favoritism or whatever it might be, we can get a sense of what that feels like. Mm -hmm. And we can kind of feel the righteous indignation kind of welling up within us. Well, what am I, chopped liver? I mean, you Mm -hmm. know, this Mm -hmm. this isn't right. This isn't fair. However, even though we might be able to identify with that level of resentment, His acting out of that resentment is where the early story of humankind really goes off the rails because as a result, you get the first act of fratricide, killing of a brother, Hmm. which is the first act of murder, which results in the very first death, which results in the first season of grief ever experienced. Hmm. And so this dark story comes to a very dark place because of some apparent dark stuff going on in Cain's heart out of his resentment for God actually showing favoritism to Abel. It's a tough story. Yeah, and it really begins, you know, you mentioned encouraging us to think about how this whispers Jesus' name. If nothing else, we're at least starting to see the whispers of when we're left to our own dealing of things like anger, we can go to really bad places. And our need for God is bigger sometimes than we ever realize. And for a sacrifice that goes beyond anything that any of us could ever offer up ourselves. Okay, this is going to be a silly question I'm going to ask anyway, so you can respond in as silly a manner as you'd like. When you were a kid, were you ever sent to your room? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that would imply that I did things wrong, Bill. Mm. Just kidding. Yeah, I went to my room a lot. I'm beginning with the presupposition that all of us got sent to our rooms yeah. probably yeah. more than once. You know, what's mm-hmm. interesting is I don't ever remember being sent to my room, but I remember being punished many times. Yeah. <laughs> like the time my mouth was washed out with soap because yeah. I came to the dinner table and said something that was, mm-hmm. you know, where yeah. did that come from? <laughs> and I remember joking from moms who would say, you know, you're in a timeout, and then they'd say, to their friend, I wish I could be in a timeout. Yeah. I'd love to go to my room. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and there's something in that idea of being sent to your room that really grates against our humanity. And at its most extreme level, we've talked before on the program about why solitary confinement is considered the harshest punishment short of capital punishment. Solitary confinement is considered the absolute worst thing that can happen to you. Why is that? Because we're made for human interaction and need that for health. It's what happens with 
babies as well that are in orphanages and aren't mm-hmm. held and how that causes developmental issues. All of that's tied together. We're made for human interaction. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So Cain is going to be sent to his room in an extreme way in the portion of scripture we're going to look at. We began by looking at the first family, Adam and Eve, and then Cain was born. Then we saw the first sibling rivalry with Abel, whose puff of air life was snuffed out by Cain because of friction between them over offerings of worship, actually. Now the Lord is going to confront Cain about the murder of his brother and That takes us to Genesis 4, verses 9 through 16. So if y'all just want to kind of read around verses 9 through 16, who'd like to start? Okay, I will. Okay. Afterward, the Lord asked Cain, where is your brother? Where is Abel? I don't know, Cain responded. Am I my brother's guardian? Then he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. Now you are cursed. From the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a wanderer and a drifter on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is too great to endure. Behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground, and I will be hidden from your face, and I will be a wanderer and a drifter on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. So the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him seven times as much. And the Lord placed a mark on Cain so that no one finding him would kill him. Then Cain left the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Now, again, there's a certain measure of mystery in here, and there's a bunch of stuff going on. But before we really start tackling the text... I think it's very interesting how even in these earliest days of humankind, God is asking weighty questions. In the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3, God said, Adam, where are you? Mm-hmm. Now he says, Cain, where's your brother? Those are really significant questions. And both of them deal with where. <laughs> both of them are locational in that sense. So. So Cain responds to God's charges against him with lies, with some sarcasm, and with an apparent absolute lack of remorse, which does not help that situation that God Mm. had warned him about in our last conversation, does it? Mm. Yeah. And you see that with his response, am I my brother's keeper? Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 When you think about God banishing, driving out Cain, think about it in this sense. We said in our first conversation in Genesis 3 that Adam and Eve were banished from the garden, Mm -hmm. which was kind of symbolically the location where they could have real interaction with God. Now, Cain feels he's being driven out even further from God's presence. And it's almost as if he's saying, the punishment doesn't fit the crime. All I did was kill my brother. You're driving me away. Again, it has this sense of that's not fair. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's also this like moving further and further away from the ideal Mm -hmm. that God had created in the garden. You know, that phrase East of Eden is a thematic phrase that shows up and it kind of represents this moving further and further away from God's ideal. And Mm -hmm. so you have Adam and Eve leaving the garden on the East 
and then you have Cain going further east. And so it's yeah. like this progression of moving further and further away from God's ideal. And he sensed such danger in that too, didn't he? Yeah. You know, yeah. you go to your room, at least you're by yourself. Yeah. But Cain had the sense that he's being driven out of the house even, and there's danger out there. And that's part of the mystery that we're talking about in this text because the only people we have been introduced to in the biblical text are Adam, Eve, Cain, and Abel. So who's he afraid of? Yeah. Well, we know by verse 17, he also marries someone and has a wife. So (laughs) that's definitely part of the mystery. So apparently, and again, this is what a lot of scholars conjecture. We don't have biblical data to support it either way, but what they conjecture is that Adam and Eve, who both lived a long time, and they were told to be fruitful and multiply. They did, and they had all kinds of kids. But for specific reasons that we'll talk about in our last conversation, these are the names that we track. Mm -hmm. Because there's a thread of story that's being told here that follows these particular names. And so out of all the other kids that Adam and Eve, I mean, I'm calling this series My Three Sons, there may have been hundreds of sons for all we Mm -hmm. know. Mm-hmm. But these are the ones that the biblical story tracks with. Does that help any? Sure. And we don't know the time period either then, do no, we? No, we don't. We mm-hmm. don't know how much time elapsed between leaving the garden and the birth of Cain or between the birth of Cain and the birth of Abel or between the birth of Abel and the time of the sacrifices that caused. There's no time mm-hmm. marker given at any point in this story. All we're given is the names of the my three sons that we're focusing on in these conversations. I remember having a conversation with Brian about Revelation and what he said about Revelation I thought was really helpful for really looking at the whole Bible, which is oftentimes we want to ask how and when, but those Mm -hmm. typically end up being the wrong questions. It's better to ask who and why. And so in this story, that just gets us away from the distractions of trying to figure out timelines and all that. Instead, we can hear who's the who and why are things happening instead. Mm -hmm. I have questions rumbling around, but I don't want to take you off your point, Bill. You know, but I'm noticing that even though this horrible edict is being given that he's going to be exiled, you know, there is a tenderness in God's doing so, just as there was with Adam and Eve. You know, Mm -hmm. he put this flaming sword to keep them from going back. And and with Cain, there is another kind of a tenderness that comes up as we were reading. Mm -hmm. I had a prof in Bible college who said, ultimately, even God's acts of judgment are ultimately acts of mercy. And sometimes it's hard to see that. But if you begin with the heart of God, as we've seen it described in Exodus 34, 6 and 7, then yes, he is the one who deals with wrongdoing, but he's also the one that's gracious and full of faithful love and all those things. So we need to kind of always try to keep the character and heart of God in the background whenever we're looking at these stories that he is actively engaged in. It's interesting to me that just as God asked two where questions, where are you, Adam, and Cain, where's your brother? Mm-hmm. There's also two responses that are almost like accusing God. The woman you gave me, and you have driven me out. Both Adam and Cain reacted badly to the consequences of their choices. And that certainly can't be helpful to the situation. Yeah, it reminds me of in moments sometimes where I am teaching kids (laughs) how sometimes it's their actions that are leading to consequences of their actions. 
but I, as the parent, get blamed for whatever the consequences are mm-hmm. that they're experiencing. And it seems similar here in the same way that Adam and Cain are getting distracted by the fact that they have made decisions and done things that have led to certain outcomes. Mm-hmm. But it's easy to blame God for those sometimes. Yeah. yeah. And this whole story is really moving over the centuries to the ultimate consequence, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and, and it strikes me, and we've touched on this, that we think that the big sin is murder, and it is, definitely. But there is such an echo of the original sin mm-hmm. of just thinking I'm God or thinking, you know, disbelieving God's love or disbelieving who I am and my purpose. There's all this stuff. I mean, I may not be a literal murderer, but the reality is we all have this falseness that we listen to above truth, above the hope that God wants us to hear. That's a really good point, Elisa. And with that in mind, I want you to hear what 1 John chapter 3 says about Cain. It says, not as Cain, who was of the evil one and Mm. murdered his brother. And for what reason did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil, but his brothers were righteous. Now, I want you to focus on that. He was of the evil one. Because we see the evil one in Genesis 3 tempting Eve. We don't see the evil one in the storyline of chapter 4. But 1 John 3 says, no, he's there. He's there and he's involved and he's active and all those kind of things. And where that really kind of pays off is in John 8 verse 44 when Jesus said to the religious leaders, you are of your father the devil and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. So there seems there's a lot in play here mysteriously that, again, we're not given all the details to. And maybe, Daniel, is because of what you said. We want to ask the what and when questions, but God wants us to focus on the who and the why. The who is Cain who killed Abel, and the why is because of something in his heart that was putting him in a position of getting even further and further away from God. And I think that the evil one has a role to play in all of this, even when he's not actively described as being in the scene, because he was a murderer from the beginning. And this is the beginning of murder in Genesis chapter 4. My Three Sons is our study in this edition of the Discover the Word podcast. And it's a pretty dark and tragic story of sons one and two, Cain and Abel. But son number three is going to provide a more positive perspective and a positive trajectory to this story. Discover who that third son is and discover a little bonus to his part of the story that will likely make you smile, especially if you have grandkids. The next part of our study, My Three Sons, follows this short break. Now, Discover the Word is one aspect of a much broader ministry with lots of other resources associated with it. We are part of Our Daily Bread Ministries, and over the 85 years of our existence, the Lord has provided for us to tell the story of Jesus in a wide variety of ways. We began as a radio program back in 1938 called Radio Bible Class, a groundbreaking in a lot of ways, and on the front end of using media to communicate the gospel. We still are on radio stations across North America and select locations around the world. And of course, we also do audio through podcasts. We have a video aspect of the ministry and a large print operation. 
We distribute over 60 million copies of the Our Daily Bread devotional around the world each year, in addition to other print products. Online, we have resources that are used by many. And so I'd encourage you to check out some of the other ways that Our Daily Bread Ministries can help you grow in your walk with Christ. And while we are so grateful to have friends like you joining us for these podcasts, we're also thankful for the support of friends who make this ministry possible through their financial giving. Your gift today, no matter the size, will help us continue to make the life-changing story and wisdom of the Bible accessible to people all around the world. You can give when you go online to discovertheword.org and click on the Donate tab. And now, back to My Three Sons. In the sports world, what are substitutes? They come off the bench, don't they? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if we don't want to talk about sports, we could also say substitute teachers, right? They come in and replace the star teacher and teach and take the, the place of... The star teacher. Yeah. But sometimes the substitute is the star, True. Daniel, <laughs> because <laughs> they don't give us homework and <laughs> they're sometimes more fun. In sports, when a substitute comes on... Either it's because the coach has decided that the person that's being replaced is not doing their job well and they need somebody to come in and do it, or they're tweaking something as far as their tactics for the game. Yeah, strategy. And they need this other person to come in and do something different to change the profile of the game mm-hmm. at that point. Yeah, or mm-hmm. the first stringer is just tired, has to have a rest. Or he gets hurt. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Now, I will tell you that when I played sports, I hated substitution. I hated it on both sides. I hated being on the bench, and I hated being (laughs) in the game and having somebody come in off the bench to replace me. I hated the whole idea of substitutes. I wanted to be out there, and I wanted to be out there the whole time. Or you just hated sports. I can't quite tell, but keep going. Keep going. (laughs) At a family level, and we've talked about this before in the story of Job. You know, at the beginning of his story, his children are killed. And then at the end, he gets more children. But those children can't be substitutes for those original children, right? Mm -hmm. No, right. I mean, nothing can replace a person in the truest sense of the word because each human being is utterly unique. Yeah. And so we've been talking about Adam and Eve's My Three Sons, and we've seen Cain and Abel. And in this conversation, we're going to see the third son that's mentioned in the book of Genesis. And to get that, Elisa, would you read Genesis 4, verses 25 and 26 for us? Oh, sure. Okay. Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has appointed me another child in place of Abel because Cain killed him. To Seth, also a son, was born, and he named him Enosh. Then people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, once again, through this whole story, there's some mysterious stuff going on. Mm -hmm. And there's some mysterious stuff going on here. But I think the first thing that grabs my attention is that phrase, another child in place of Abel. Notice she doesn't say in place of Cain, who was driven away and banished. She said, in place of Abel, whom Cain killed. Mm-hmm. Now, how does that hit you? But she remembers the pain that he brought into her life, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this whole story is just so painful on so many levels that it's really hard to even describe how it hits me because I'm just imagining her and what she's been through and 
just the dynamics of grief and the tension with Cain. And there's just so many layers to this that make it complicated. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's a repetitiveness to how the text represents it too, Bill. And I don't know if you wanted to dig into that, but you know, at the beginning with the Lord's help, I brought forth a son, which seems to say God's promise that evil will go away is going to be completed. And then you've helped us see that she brought forth a brother, not necessarily another son. And now we see she gives birth to a son in place of. So there's some kind, is, is this building? There's a rhythm in it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. I think there's a rhythm. And remembering that most Old Testament history was originally, and for the longest time, oral history, you can understand mm-hmm. why there'd be rhythmic patterns in the telling of the stories, because most of these stories had been told for generations before they were ever written down. The oral history of the ancient world is, I think, fairly well known. What I think is really interesting here is that as you look at Seth, Seth means appointed or in place of or something like that. And so you have now a very different kind of name, and it's a name that actually moves us forward in the story. Read again verse 26, Elisa. To Seth also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. And then people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Okay, so first of all, maybe we need to change the name of these conversations to my three sons and a grandson, (laughs) because you have Enosh popping onto the story Mm -hmm. here. But then Mm -hmm. notice something, and again, it's mysterious. We're not told why, but the word then, then people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Something about the birth of Enosh triggered a return to worship. Yeah, that's a separate sentence in the NIV. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. It's like a pause, even, you know, a transitional kind of conclusion. And from that, that ends chapter four and carries us into chapter five, which is a chapter of genealogy, which are always our favorite things in the Bible Mm -hmm. to read, uh, because we don't know how to pronounce the names, and they're usually not filled with just thrilling events and so forth. But This following genealogy tracks the line of Seth. Now, chapter 4 gives us some information about the line of Cain. And what's interesting is when you compare the line of Cain with the line of Seth, is that Cain's line were the builders of culture. And it seems as though Seth's line is a line of worshipers. Cain built cities, Jubal made musical instruments, Tubal Cain forged metal weapons. But after Seth was born, then people began to call upon the Lord. And out of his line, you have even someone like Enoch, who walked with God and was not because God took him. And in Seth's line, you have Noah, who found grace in the eyes of the Lord at one of the darkest times in human history. So there seems to be two very different lines that are in view. And the biblical storyline is setting up here to track the line of Seth going forward. Mm -hmm. Seth, who is the substitute for Abel, who Cain had killed. Something that kind of helps reinforce that too, Bill, is not only does Seth mean in place of, but it's a word that's used throughout the Old Testament to mean foundation as well. Mm -hmm. And so it's this idea of not only is he in place of, but this is the foundational line or the, as you said, the line that's going to be tracked and the story of the Bible kind of follows that line. So he's kind of the new beginning to the story that evidently Mm -hmm. was going to be Abel, but now Mm -hmm. is Seth. 
So, so Bill, is there any speculation as to why people began to call on the name of the Lord? You know, it's all speculation. And the only thing that I found was that commentators kept connecting it to the birth of Enosh. There was something mm-hmm. about the birth of Enosh, maybe because it was the first grandchild that's recorded. And so it sees the human race as continuing and going forward. And so that perpetuation of humankind caused people to respond with worship and gratitude and call okay. upon the name of the Lord. Mm-hmm. But again, it's all speculation. Again, this is one of those mysterious things. It seems grammatically to be connected, but we're not told why it's connected. Okay. So conceivably, God himself could have just begun to open up people's hearts uh, rather than there being some kind of a catastrophic event, right? Yeah, yeah, it doesn't have to be a bad thing. It could be something very good that God did through the birth of Enosh that caused people to be drawn back to him. Okay. And I wonder, just looking at this part of the story, Seth being born happens right after what we see Cain's descendants, Cain's story, violence spirals out of control after mm-hmm. Cain. Right, like his descendants, you end up with this guy, Lamech, and like it just spirals out of control. Violence and murder and even the way women are treated. All of this just becomes so negative. But then it's almost like you have this other story that's starting to shape up, which is there's these two streams. One is what happens when violence gets out of control. There's this other stream, which is people that are walking in God's path or following God. So I almost wonder, even just on a very basic level, if that's what's happening here, where we're starting to see very clearly this divergence in story mm-hmm. between following true life in God's way or following the things that we think are best, which lead to violence and destruction and death. Yeah, and conceivably, it could have even been the, the violence of the one line that was causing this other line Call upon the Lord for safety, for rescue. And isn't there this, as you said earlier, Bill, the rhythm, you know, Mm -hmm. of God's promise to provide a seed? You know, now we're in the third generation. And to me, it can be either very discouraging of why hasn't he done it, or as we've been talking about all of Scripture whispering his name, there is this ongoing promise that's beginning to take place generation to generation to Mm -hmm. generation. Yeah, I think you're on to something there. And I think as a piece of that rhythm, one of the things that we see here through Seth, the younger brother, is a pattern that's going to keep playing out through the book of Genesis, where the younger brother supplants the older brother into the place of primacy, if you will. We see that with Jacob supplanting Esau. We see that with Joseph supplanting his older brothers and so forth. We see Seth here taking this prominent role within this proper path group, as you described them, Daniel, whereas Cain is over here with this other group. And somehow all of this causes people to return to worship. And I find that so fascinating because the problem between Cain and Abel was somehow triggered by worship, and now we see a return to worship taking place with the birth of Adam's grandson, Enosh. Yeah, from experience, I can say that uh, grandkids are great, and in this case, give a shot of joy and hope into the story of my three sons and a grandson. We get a glimpse of renewed hope with the birth of Seth and then his grandson, Enosh. 
Well, you're listening to Discover the Word, and we will wrap up this conversation about how this story of rebellion and sibling rivalry that turns into murder, of heartache and separation, is also a story that whispers Jesus' name. And so how does this story of a broken family point us and connect us to Jesus? That's what we'll discover after we take a moment to preview where Daniel will be taking the group for our next study on Discover the Word. Next time on the Discover the Word podcast, we hope to take you to a place in your mind where you can smell the fragrance of a pine forest on a summer day, where you can hear the soft rustle of leaves as they fall to the ground in a stand of hardwoods on a fall day. Reach up and take a piece of ripe fruit from a tree and take a bite. Yeah, trees are a wonderful part of God's creation. And according to Daniel Ryan Day, What's interesting is trees are a big part of the Bible. In fact, the word trees shows up around 200 times. So what is with all the trees in the Bible? (laughs) You're going to tell us. (laughs) Let's find out together. What's with all the trees? That is our next study on Discover the Word. And now the conclusion of My Three Sons. We've been looking at these very, very, very ancient texts from Genesis 3 and 4 this week. And today we really kind of want to resolve the question that we started with. Does every story whisper Jesus' name, even the really dark ones? And we've seen a pretty dark story unfold before us this week. What have we seen so far in our conversations? We see a sibling rivalry that turns to murder with Cain killing his brother Abel. So it really does get dark really quick. Yeah. Separation from God and separation from who we were made to be and misunderstanding and distortion of how God views us. It's just modern day life Mm -hmm. as well. And all of it's a matter of consequence too. And Mm -hmm. the whole story of the Bible moved forward toward the greatest of all consequences. Yeah. Yeah. And I do think as we've seen the consequences, the consequences of Adam and Eve's wrongdoing in the garden is that they get expelled from the garden. The consequence of Cain killing Abel is that he gets expelled even further and banished even further away. And as we've looked at all of this, we've kind of seen, as Daniel described in our last conversation, these two streams, the line of Cain and the line of Seth, one which is going its own way according to its own desires and its own wants, and the other which is trying to walk the path that God is putting in front of them. And we see in that line of Seth people like Enosh, which when he's born, somehow it triggers a renewed worship. We see Enoch who walked with God. Does this story whisper Jesus' name? Well, I would suggest to you that it doesn't just whisper it, it screams it. (laughs) Because the name Seth only appears one time in the entire New Testament. You know where that is? Where? In the genealogy of Jesus in Luke chapter 3. No way. Yeah, Luke chapter 3, verse 38, as it's tracking backwards, it says, The son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. And that starts off with Jesus and tracking his heritage all the way back through the line of Seth. So that's why we saw that there was a thread of names that was being followed when undoubtedly Adam and Eve had had many other children who aren't named. They aren't even mentioned. 
but they must have had other children because Cain had to get his wife somewhere, and <laughs> he was afraid somebody was going to kill him, and so that means there had to be other people. And so as we think about that, all those other people, they aren't the ones who the story's following. The ones the story's following is the ones who are going to bring about the ultimate rescuer, the ultimate one who will come and bring us back to God through his own ultimate sacrifice. And so we see Seth, whose line would produce Noah, whose line would produce Shem, whose line would produce Abraham, the one through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Mm-hmm. The name Seth being in Jesus's genealogy, I think, doesn't just whisper Jesus's name in this story. I think it shouts it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it also helps us. You know, we talk about often how the Bible's telling one story. And this is another one of those glimpses we get of mm-hmm. the Bible in the very beginning telling a story that leads to Jesus and very intentionally. Because as you said, there's names omitted from these genealogies. They're not giving us the whole story. They're giving us the part of the story that we need to end up at Jesus. And even mm-hmm. Seth's name, as we were talking about, meaning in the place of, and Jesus, who's going to be the ultimate act of being in the place of, in the place of us, uh, right? Rescuing us by taking on all that evil has to offer on the cross and then rising again. So there's like even the name Seth leading us to Jesus. It just becomes more clear as we look at it that way. Yeah, and in a sense, all of the the horrible, the horrific things that happen in that Old Testament narrative, it's all really whispering to our, our shouting bill or screaming our need for something better. Yeah. A better champion, a better leader, a better, you know, a better sacrifice. And the ultimate consequence ends up being his own people rejecting him. Yeah, greater love has no one than this than they lay down their life for their friends. Yeah. And that's what Jesus would ultimately do as that perfect sacrifice that we needed. To keep that in mind with the sacrifice that Jesus would give, I want us to tie this even deeper, bringing the name of Jesus as the ultimate result and end of even this dark story. So Elisa, would you read Genesis 4, verse 10, and then right after that, Daniel, would you read Hebrews 12, 24, please? So God said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. He's speaking to Cain here. Yeah. Okay, Daniel? Yeah, Hebrews 12, 24. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Hmm. Now think about that. In Genesis 4.10, God says, your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And the way that it's stated in the context, it seems like it's crying for revenge, right? Mm -hmm. But in Hebrews 12.24, Jesus's blood speaks better than the blood of Abel. Why? Because it's crying out for mercy. It's crying out for grace and restoration and rescue. The blood of Abel is put in direct contrast to the blood of Jesus in Hebrews chapter 12. I find that fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's powerful. So as we've looked at this story this week of my three sons and a grandson, what are some things that have stood out to you? What are some things that maybe you hadn't noticed before or had a level of pop for you, as Elisa likes to say, that maybe added some texture to the story itself? Well, I would pick up right with where we just segued, and that is... For me, the concept that every story whispers Jesus' name as revealing our need 
for something better has become a hermeneutic, you know, Mm -hmm. a tool for me to understand scripture, all of it. Mm -hmm. Because there are sections of scripture like these that we've looked at that are so difficult and painful. And it's helpful to know that there's mystery involved here that we don't understand. But for me, my faith is truly strengthened when I understand that even in the ugly, Mm. I can see my own need. And that's why I've been kind of everyday-ing-ish it when I talk about the sin of murder, you know, that I don't believe that God loves me as I am, that I believe I need to compete with my brother, that I believe I need to stamp out his bestness in order to create my own Mm. bestness. You know, all of those everyday expressions of sin are things I would rather sweep under the rug Mm -hmm. and just look at, well, I'm not a murderer. But, you know, if I look at the story of Cain and Abel, and I listen for the whisper of Jesus' name in it, I see my own need. Mm -hmm. I've heard March say many, many times that everything in the Bible either directly points to Jesus, like prophetically, or it reveals to us another reason why we need him so much. And Mm -hmm. this does both. Yeah. This story does both. It speaks mm-hmm. directly to him as the one from the line of Seth who would be the one who would rescue us from the consequences of our wrongdoing, all the way back to the wrongdoing in the garden that started it all. But at the same time, it points out our need of him and what we are apart from him. And that's what we really see in Cain is how far off track we can go when we try to live life on our own terms. Mm-hmm. We, we've talked, too, about questions about God where we've wondered what had not been said in the text and why would God do what he did. And that's where I think it whispers our need, either by what is said or about what is not said, for our reassurance that, I, that God really is like Jesus revealed him to be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I yeah. think we really see that even in the text of Adam and Eve when they decide they want to do their own thing and not do what God has asked of them. God's technically, yes, he banishes them from the garden, but even that act is an act of protection because there's another Mm -hmm. tree there, the tree of living forever. Mm -hmm. And if they eat of that tree in their now broken state, then they're forever broken. And so even that act of, taking them out of the garden is an act of protection and provision for them. And then when we get to Cain, who does the unthinkable, there's a consequence to that unthinkable. But God's response, even in that consequence is, but I'm going to put a mark on you and protect you. And so we see, even when we make some of the most evil and worst decisions that we can, this God of justice who allows the consequences to keep going and who will ultimately rescue the world through Christ. Even in that, he's still this merciful, kind God who also protects us even when we make the biggest mistakes. So as we've considered this story that ended up being my three sons and a grandson, we've really seen one of the darkest early moments in humankind's history. And yet even that story connects so deeply into the story of Jesus that yes, in fact, every story does whisper his name. And if we will seek God's wisdom and his help to discern the scriptures, what we can find there is the story of Jesus being told all the way throughout from Old Testament to New, because he ultimately is the story that the Bible's telling. Yeah, that is so good. 
we can see clearly that the story of the Bible from the very beginning leads to our salvation and points us toward our Savior, Jesus Christ. You're listening to Discover the Word alongside Marty Hahn, Elisa Morgan, Bill Crowder, and Daniel Ryan Day. And we're glad you were at the table for these conversations that Bill led us through called My Three Sons. Discover the Word is a small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries in Grand Rapids, Michigan, in which we invite you to walk with us through topics and passages that inform the way we read the scriptures, challenge us as we live our lives as followers of Christ, and always point us to discover Jesus in the pages of the Bible. And don't forget to join us for our next study that we'll do together called, What's With All the Trees? Well, thanks for listening. I'm Brian Hedinga. Discover the Word is provided by Our Daily Bread Ministries.